Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, April 4th, 2022, the 439th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Before we get started, I want to thank the great team at MyPillow for helping to sponsor this show and to support MyPillow, to support this show and to support a great American, Mike Lindell. If you want your house and your life to be a little more comfortable, go to MyPillow.com and see what they've got there. I've got the sheets, the mattress topper, and the pillows, and I enjoy them all. And they're going to send me the towels and the slippers, and I can't wait for that. So if you want to introduce similar comfort to your life for a great price, Go to MyPillow.com and you can get up to 60% off a whole range of items using the promo code REASONABLE. And they'll even send you a free gift right now. I believe it is Mike Lindell's story about his recovery from drug addiction to finding God to growing a successful American business that supports America. So go do that. Now, Friday, April Fool's Day, I did not come out with a podcast. And I apologize for that. Because, you know, I do my best to get a show up five days a week. Sometimes that gets difficult depending on what else I'm focusing on. And I have been laser focused on trying to get this writing project finished. I started about six weeks ago trying to explain the phenomenon of the media choosing not to cover the at Q account on Truth Social when it came out. You know, Truth Social CEO Devin Nunes, a former congressman from California who helped unravel the Russia collusion hoax with Cash Patel. Both of those guys recognized the presence of at Q on Truth Social and at Q posts some memes and some cryptic stuff and interacts with the community, which of course leads some people to speculate that this is 
the return of Q or a new iteration of Q or at least a wink and a nod to Q. It's entirely possible that this is a completely other Q and they're just having fun and trolling the media. All that's possible. But why hasn't the media bothered covering it? That's what I explore in this piece, because you would think that they would cover it just to make fun of QAnon again, to use the boogeyman. The boogeyman always works until everybody realizes the boogeyman isn't actually scary. And so I posted parts one and two for everybody, whether or not you're a subscriber, parts one through six are up for paid subscribers. I'm going to be putting up more of it over the next probably day, but definitely this week. And in the next few days, that whole series will be up. And I'm very proud of it, especially part seven that you will see eventually called a story about reality. And my argument isn't that you should believe Q or not believe Q. I think that that is a silly way to consider a set of information that doesn't require belief to be interesting or useful. And the fact that QAnon, this media creation of a conspiracy theory, a cult that people keep joining, is now this amorphous scapegoat for whatever conflicts with the mainstream media narrative. It's kind of a travesty, man. What the media has done is create bigotry about the Q community and the broader truth community that intersects with the Q community. It is just bigotry. It's just part of a hate movement. And that's why it's been so effective for them. But that effectiveness is wearing off. And regardless, the people in the Q community, Anons, and the people in the broader truth community do not deserve the way they are treated by the media and by the culture at large. And so that is what I intend to address in this very long piece. So I hope you go over to the Substack. I'm your moderator.substack.com and give that a read. I think you will really enjoy it. I had a lot of fun writing it. And so I was deep into writing that story about reality section. And when I'm writing like that about that material, and you'll see when you finally see it, I don't always have the same bandwidth required to do the show. There's a certain amount of information I'm able to consume and process and analyze in one day. And then my output is a factor of that. And if that output is spread in a bunch of different directions, it becomes difficult to nail them all in the way that I would like. Also on Friday evening, I was a guest on my friend Brian's show. He goes by CanCon online. So you may be familiar with him. If you want to see that, you can head on over to his Rumble channel. It's C-A-N-N-C-O-N. And you will find our conversation from Friday night. So there was some stuff on Friday that I was going to cover. And I want to just mention briefly, Jen Psaki, it has been reported, is leaving her role as press secretary of the fake White House for a job at MSNBC. And that is disturbing, obviously, that the person who is the fake administration's chief propaganda mouthpiece is now exiting the administration to be the fake administration's chief propaganda mouthpiece at a mainstream media outlet something that is ostensibly a news channel. They will tell you they're a news channel, so will CNN. And they will tell you that they have a responsibility to speak truth to power and hold the feet to the fire, all the things they say about their lofty goals, their role in society. And it's disturbing because we don't even think that's weird anymore. We just expect it. Now, part of that, is us expecting anything from the news beyond propaganda. And our solution then is to understand that MSNBC is not the news and then disregard it. 
But we also shouldn't have government officials immediately going in and working for the propaganda mouthpieces. It becomes clear that the motivation of these mainstream outlets is not in any way to inform the people or to hold the powers that be in check. Jen Psaki is actually going to get to lie more and probably for a bigger audience after going to MSNBC. And yes, MSNBC's audience is generally falling apart, but it's still bigger than the fake administration's audience. Now, there was another big story on Friday where the mainstream media was forced to admit that another one of its hoaxes turned out to be a hoax. And this, of course, is the gap in Trump's phone logs from January 6th, 2021. That was when he was planning all the insurrection stuff. That's what they said. CNN on Friday, official review of Trump phone logs from January 6th finds record is complete. In the seven hours during which White House records showed no phone calls to or from then President Donald Trump on January 6th, 2021, among the calls that are conspicuously absent is one Trump made to then Vice President Mike Pence that morning from the Oval Office. While the call is not specifically noted in the presidential diary or the presidential call log, its existence has been corroborated by multiple sources who were with Trump and Pence that day, including former aides who testified before the House Select Committee investigating the U.S. Capitol attack. And it's not the only call Trump is known to have made in that time frame that is not reflected in the records. The mystery of the seven hour gap has fueled furious speculation as to why calls are missing. That includes allegations that Trump was using burner phones, which he has denied, or that the logs were purposely suppressed. But the gap might have a less mysterious explanation. According to multiple sources familiar with Trump's phone behavior and the White House switchboard records, the January 6th log reflects Trump's typical phone habits. He mainly placed calls through the switchboard when he was in the residence, but rarely used it when he was in the Oval Office. The fact the log does not show calls on January 6, 2021 from the Oval Office is not unusual, said the sources, because Trump typically had staff either place calls directly for him on landlines or cell phones. Those calls would not be noted on the switchboard log. So the thing they made a huge deal about, the new silver bullet that would finally get Trump, turns out to be totally normal. How many more things should we expect the January 6th committee, the illegitimate, unconstitutional select committee investigating January 6th? How many more things will we hear them bring up them filter into the news that turn out to be completely false? Well, the answer is all of them. I just don't know how many things that is. So also on Friday, there were reports that the comedic actor in Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, decided to fire two of his top generals, calling them traitors. He accused them of failing to do their duty in protecting Ukraine. And he warned that they will all be punished, but not now because he's busy making Zoom calls, asking if people will just please close the sky. And what a strange occurrence that two top generals might be traitors. I mean, all we've seen from Ukraine for six weeks is just unbelievable commitment to fighting off the Russian hordes. They're pushing them back. They're stopped on the road. They're unable to get supplies. They still haven't taken Kiev even after five weeks of being able to take Kiev any day now. Every single narrative the news brings up about Ukraine and honestly about anything else falls apart pretty quickly. And so this weekend, they were broadcasting the staging of a massacre in Buka, and now Joe Biden got off his little helicopter getting back from another glorious weekend in Delaware where the fake administration refuses to release its visitor logs because it's just grandma. It's just Hunter and the kids. <laughs> 
But Joe gets off the helicopter. He doubles down on the idea that Putin's a war criminal. And then he pitches the Buka line. Oh, we've all seen it. We've all seen it. It's real because we all saw it on television. Here you go. Remember, I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. Well, the truth of the matter, you saw what happened to Vuka. This warrants him, he is a war criminal. But we have to gather the information. We have to continue to provide Ukraine with the weapons they need to continue the fight. And we have to gather all the detail so this can be an actual, have a war crime trial. This guy is brutal. And what's happening in Vuka is outrageous. And everyone's seen it. Up to Allah. No, I think it is a war crime. I'm seeking more sanctions, yes. I'll have time to ask that to you. He should be held accountable. Well, no. No, no, no. The war crime stuff, yes, I'm going to continue to add sanctions. Thank you. So I apologize if that was a little difficult to hear with the whirring helicopter blades. But Joe Biden basically said, I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. But look what you just saw in Buka. He is a war criminal. And someone asked, well, is it a genocide? And he said, well, no, he's a a war criminal. Well, I thought the whole thing was he was going there to slaughter Ukrainians and reform the Soviet Union. But maybe not. Maybe that's not on the table anymore. Maybe they've switched away from that narrative by now. We can tell he's a war criminal based on some video clips on the mainstream media this weekend that don't really hold up much better than the ghost of Kiev did. And then Joe says, well, yeah, maybe we'll do more sanctions. We're going to keep giving them guns. I mean, somebody's got to supply those foreign mercenaries and Nazis in Ukraine. But more sanctions, more sanctions will get Putin to stop. I'm told it has a deterrent effect. And maybe we'll get into more of the Buka stuff this week if that story actually hangs around. I'm not even sure it's going to make it another day. I guess we'll see. They basically lose all of their big narratives within, I don't know, 48 hours or so. They have another one going on from this weekend in California. There was a shooting there, and immediately we're getting calls for increased gun control. Increased gun control, that would have stopped everything. It's crazy how they have the biggest problems with guns in the places with the most gun control, like California or like Chicago. But more gun control is what we need. Whenever the communism doesn't work, you say... Well, we didn't try actual communism. What we need is more communism. Then it'll work. We don't tell you that everything's going to be utopia unless you give us all the power. And until you give us all the power, you can't say our ideas were wrong. Well, okay, sure thing, commie. And of course, I don't mean to slight the lives of the people who have died in various places when I am calling out the fact that the media and the politicians and the global communist order are exploiting these people's deaths to create a story to help them achieve power, to help them achieve their political ends. And it's crazy that it even needs to be said, but that is the other side that does that. And they do it about everything. So over the weekend, Trump was up in Michigan for a rally. This one was in an indoor facility. There was like 7,000 people there. The indoor ones are kind of cool. That was very much like the Trump rally I attended in Henderson, Nevada in 2020. And the atmosphere is a little different because everybody's indoors. The sound gets trapped in there. So the vibe is really high not only for the people in the room, but for the television audience, because the cheering of the crowd and the chants of the crowd really come through. Trump himself was very high energy, gave another great speech, but the real star of the night, the breakout star of the night was 
Christina Caramo, who is running for Michigan Secretary of State against the utterly corrupt communist and George Soros plant, Jocelyn Benson. And I really want to play her speech that she gave when Trump called her up during his speech. She spoke separately earlier, but this is the one that she gave with Trump right next to her. I just like to ask Christina, this is a an incredible woman respected by everybody. And if you could say a few words, we'd love it. Thank you. you did for our country. You pulled the scale off of so many people's eyes of how there's a cabal of people and leaderships bent on destroying our country. Thank you. Thank you. We actually had a person in our presidency who loved our country and who didn't do it to advance himself, but to actually fight back. Thank you. Because that's what we need in leadership. You know, what's interesting is according to the state of Michigan, I didn't vote in the 2020 election. And what's so interesting of all the lies told about me, I, I, that's the most infuriating thing. Like, why would I spend all that time at the TCF Center, knock doors for President Trump and turn around and not vote? But then I foiled my application to vote, proving that I voted in the 2020 election, even though, according to the state of Michigan, I didn't vote. And there are so many people across the state where, according to the Secretary of State, they voted different than they actually did vote. But we're insurrectionists, we're traitors, big life proponents for asking questions. But then our media protects corrupt politicians and demonizes citizens for speaking up. So I am so excited to be your next Secretary of State to make sure that no matter who you vote for, what you believe, your vote counts and your vote is nullified by an illegal ballot. You know what else, President Trump? You inspired so many people to run for office, to stand up and fight back because he cannot do it by himself. It's an army of people across our state who are fighting back, little MAGA warriors, and we're getting the job done. Thank you. and speak again. Now that right there is a future star of the America First movement. There is no question about it. That is a serious fighter on the ground in Michigan and they have Matthew DiPerno up there as well running for attorney general. He also spoke during the rally and that is worth watching as well. You can find them both pretty easily on Rumble. But that right there is the winning formula. Passion drive, honesty, and fearlessness. You have to tell the truth. The candidates that get up there with Trump's endorsement and don't talk about stolen elections and don't talk about America first, they talk about their stuff, traditional politicians running toward the center, thinking that everybody wants a unity vote. Maybe Democrats will come vote for a Republican if the Republican seems enough like a Democrat. No. Those days are over. This is the tone right here that wins in 2022, wins in 2024, and wins for the foreseeable future in America as the Democrat Party is absolutely decimated and wiped off the political map. That is what we should expect, and that is what we should demand out of the candidates who expect our support. And this brand of nationalism in putting your country, the country you represent, the country you live in, putting the priorities of your country first, that is working around the world. Sovereign states are rising up around the world. The new world order is failing. The one world global communist order is coming crashing down. You can see it in Ukraine. You can see it here as it's further and further exposed, and you can see it in other parts of Europe. This weekend, Hungary's Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party were announced the winners of Hungary's election, and he will continue to serve as Hungary's prime minister. 
This is from today in Breitbart. In a victory speech to supporters of his Fidesz KDNP party on Sunday, Prime Minister Orban hailed their triumph over the, quote, overwhelming force of the left at home, the international left all around, the Brussels bureaucrats, the Soros empire with all its money, the international mainstream media, and in the end, even the Ukrainian president as proof that, quote, Christian democratic politics, conservative civic politics, and patriotic politics are not the past, but the future. He said, we have won a great victory, a victory so great that you can see it from the moon, certainly from Brussels. Because, of course, the EU has tried to destroy him just as Western politicians and Western media have. The European editor for the BBC, Katya Adler, said you could almost hear the collective thud of EU hearts sinking last night. Orban's reference to the Ukrainian president as a member of the coalition against him, which included even the Jobbik party denounced as a neo-Nazi party by the president of the European Jewish Congress as recently as 2015, and once a source of great concern for anti-Orban news outlets, is an allusion to the fact that Volodymyr Zelensky intervened more or less directly in the election to accuse the Hungarian leader of openly supporting Mr. Putin. References to Orban being a longtime rally of Russian President Vladimir Putin and famed for his warm relations with Vladimir Putin abound in mainstream media coverage of the election results, even by notionally neutral outlets like the Associated Press and BBC. Although the Hungarian leader has always insisted that his dealings with the Kremlin have strictly practical bases, such as keeping gas prices down and the maintenance and expansion of nuclear energy production. Uniquely among European Union member states bordering Ukraine, Orban's Hungary has refused to allow weapons shipments to cross into the embattled country through its territory, although other forms of aid are permitted. The Hungarian opposition have been pushing for weapons shipments to be allowed, but the government resisted, warning that this could see the country dragged into the war and, moreover, could see the Ukrainian region, which borders Hungary, subjected to more Russian strikes, endangering its substantial ethnic Hungarian minority. Ukraine's treatment of its Hungarian minority has long been a source of tension between Kyiv and Budapest, with the latter blocking cooperation with Ukraine and NATO and EU forums prior to the Russian invasion as a result. Man, that's weird that the comedic actor's government and society would have a problem with those of Hungarian ethnic minority in Ukraine. That's so unlike them. The Ukrainian government appeared to suggest that the Hungarian government desires that a victorious Russia will transfer sovereignty over the border region known as Transcarpathia to Budapest, a suggestion Orban's government strenuously denies. And again, how shocking that a sovereign nationalist leader's motivations have been completely and intentionally misconstrued by the global communist movement and its propaganda state media. Now, before switching subjects completely, a statement was just released from the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs and their spokeswoman, Maria Zakharova, about the Buka incident. And here's what she says. So take it as you will. This is Russia's official position on what happened. It is up to you to decide how to take it and how to think of it. I'd like to draw our attention to one thing. The heads of state, foreign ministers, and opinion leaders have been making their statements based exclusively on video footage that is less than one minute long and a few images. This is enough for them to lay the whole blame on us. There were no experts on site. They did not receive any other information. Let me remind you that several days ago, the entire world saw authentic footage of our soldiers being tortured over there in Ukraine, and the Ukrainian side recognized the authenticity of these recordings. Have you heard anything from President Emmanuel Macron or UK Foreign Secretary Liz Truss or others about this? Who is the master of provocation? The United States and NATO, of course. 
In this case, I think that the very fact that these statements came in a matter of minutes after these materials surfaced leaves no doubt as to who was behind this entire story. And so that's their position on things that the video is misrepresented, first of all, staged, second of all, although she didn't say it in that statement, you can pretty clearly tell that it is, but that it's also just a very small series of clips composing less than a minute in total. And from that, you are supposed to believe that Russia is indiscriminately killing Ukrainian citizens and just leaving their bodies in the streets, just massacre a whole town. That's what they're doing. That's what the media is telling us based on less than a minute of video footage. It's hard not to think of it as anything other than Orwell's two minutes hate. Hey, we're going to show you this little video. And because you already hate Russians, you're going to believe the video is real. And once you believe the video is real, ooh, you're going to hate them so much more. Same thing they do about the election. The big lie. Same thing they do about vaccinations. Same thing they do about the Q community. Convince a bunch of people who don't know anything about anything. They're too busy to really try to find out what's going on in the world about all these important subjects. That's what the news is there for to collect everything and then give us only the important stuff and tell us what to think about it. So we don't have to do it ourselves. We're too busy to learn. Don't you understand how important our lives are? We don't want to bog ourselves down with all those bad feelings. So you convince these people that the source of all their problems is the people on the other side, the people not like them. And then once you have enough different ways and means to justify your hatred of strangers you don't understand at all, well, then all you need is just a few more little hints every now and then. It restores your hatred and it might even spawn some new hatred. And that is very, very effective if you're trying to take over the world as communists. Communists and believers of all collectivist ideologies gain power through division. There is a good group of people and a bad group of people. The bad group of people are called oppressors. They're the ones who make everything very hard for the truly oppressed, which are also back in the good group of people. So the good group of people are the very, very powerful people who have everything worked out perfectly in their own lives. And now they need to protect the very, very, very low people with communism. That's what the communism's for. And so the only thing that they have to do to get everybody on the same page is make sure that everyone hates the other side enough to disavow them, vote for the good side, and then give them more power. And hey, are the elections fair? No, they're not. Because if the elections were fair, no one would ever vote for that. And now there's this from the Russian ambassador at the United Nations. To provide wholehearted assistance in guaranteeing safety for the evacuation of these people, we informed the UN Secretariat of all of this in timely fashion. However, the radicals in Mariupol violated this agreement. As is clear from a a radio conversation, a radio conversation that was intercepted between two commanders of the Nationalist Battalion Azov that is in Volnovakhi, the radicals there were told to shoot at the legs of those who who were heading for the humanitarian corridors. Those who risked life and limb to try and leave Mariupol, when they reached the checkpoints to to exit the city, were shot on sight by Ukrainian Nazis. There's a great deal of video evidence of this. In Mariupol alone, there were some 200,000 civilians who are in the crosshairs of the of the, the the forces there and those who are ready to the humanitarians who are trying to offer assistance aren't able to get there and to prevent the catastrophe that is developing in the town the critical situation for people in other regions of the country is, is they are also blockaded by nationalist battalions. We note that Ukrainian radicals day by day are showing their true face more clearly. The local civil, the locals, inhabitants have said that they forced out the staff of a maternity clinic and then put a firing site in that clinic. They also completely destroyed one of the nursery schools in the city. 
It is clear to us that the Kiev regime is making use of all available and unavailable methods to wholeheartedly stop the exit of those citizens who wish to leave to, and also foreigners who wish to go to Russia because they're scared that once these people are free, they will tell the truth about the actions of Ukrainian radicals, as is being done by those people who've been able to get out away from these radicals. We're talking here about threats, intimidation, blackmail, physical violence, and also shooting on sight directed at citizens and also foreigners. By, by way of illustration, just one statement from the mayor of Sumy, Alexander Lysenko. This was made today together with the commander of a national battalion. And I quote, There will not be any green corridors. No civilians will leave to Russia. And those who try to will be shot dead. End of quote. So there is a little bit more of the Russian side of things. That's being said directly to the members of the United Nations Security Council. Are they lying? Are the Russians lying to the UN? Are they lying to the world? Is this all just a Putin fabrication that we should all ignore because we have the Western media and the comedic actor and the global communists and Joe Biden, the fake president, telling us a different story? Well, which side is bringing evidence and which side is bringing emotional responses? It's clear by now, after six weeks, that the Russian side is the side bringing the evidence. The American side, the NATO side, the UN side, the EU side, they have not been disputing the Russian evidence. They're disputing the conclusions of that evidence. They're saying none of it's a big deal. They're making all of this stuff a big deal. But they haven't said the bio labs were not there. In fact, they said they were real. They haven't disputed that dangerous pathogens are there. The WHO actually sent a letter to Ukrainians health ministry asking them to please destroy all the deadly pathogens in those labs before the Russians even, quote unquote, invaded. So we have the labs. We know the labs are there. We know they handle dangerous pathogens or the WHO would have had no reason to warn anyone about them. Even U.S. officials have said they're concerned about those pathogens falling into Russian hands, which, again, indicates that they are dangerous, that they can be deployed as bioweapons. And we know about the DOD contracts. We know about the money trails. We know how that stuff ties back to the global communist order and to Joe Biden and Hunter Biden themselves. When American officials address this stuff, they do it in very nondescript terms. A maternity hospital was bombed. Well, we know that's part of the story. Is the thing you're referring to this maternity hospital with the Instagram influencer carrying her quote unquote baby out of it? Is that the one you're referring to? And if so, is that real? Because that hospital was evacuated two weeks prior to that incident so that Azov troops could be stationed there? Or is it another maternity hospital you're referring to? They don't tell you which one, so you can't actually validate their claims. You're just supposed to trust them because they're on the good side. They're the international body. They're the leaders of the West. They're the ones we have to trust because the television says to. The way for the West and for America, for whoever, to refute these Russian claims is to actually release all the information they have on these subjects, proving the Russian claims false. But they haven't done that because they can't do that. Because by and large, the story we've been getting from the Russian side has mapped onto reality. And the story we get from the global communist side and the American side and the European Union side doesn't map onto reality at all. It's brief videos. A lot of it very obviously staged. Some of it footage from actual video games. If you're showing us dead bodies and those dead bodies move, well, there's a good reason to doubt that what you're showing us is true. But let's have some analysis from the other side. And I'm going to go, as I often do, to the elitist mouthpiece of global communism, Project Syndicate. This is from Friday. The headline, K 
can the world afford Russia style sanctions on China? And you might think, wait, what? Now we're going to treat China the way we're treating Russia. Why would we do that? Oh, it's because future events are already in order and the Taiwan thing is going to happen. Isn't it crazy that they know that, but they're not going to tell American normies now they're going to wait another few weeks, maybe another month or two before that event begins. But let's see how they're going to preset a narrative. As the global economic fallout from the current Western-led sanctions against Russia becomes clearer, are we watching a preview of what a trade and financial rupture with China might look like? Perhaps, but many academic studies of globalization's net benefits suggest that sanctions on China or a break in the Sino-American economic ties probably would have a smaller quantitative impact than one might think, at least over the medium to long term. This is true for both the United States and China, which are large and relatively diversified economies. So while an economic rupture with China may hurt the U.S. and Europe less than one might assume, sanctions on China also might not prove nearly as effective as the measures against Russia have been. Now, that right there is a pretty big statement. They're assuming that the sanctions on Russia have been effective. Effective for what? They're supposed to achieve some goal, aren't they? We were told that the goal of those Russian sanctions was deterrence, deterrence from Putin invading Russia. Well, that didn't work. None of the sanctions deterred anything. The sanctions did help to crush the Russian economy and the Russian people for a few weeks. And it did the same here in an ongoing basis. But there was no other goal accomplished by those sanctions. They didn't even keep Russia bound by the central banking payment system and SWIFT and the financial system that facilitates Russia's oil and gas trade. Russia simply moved off that. They already have those alliances with China, Brazil, India, and South America, and they're growing those alliances. And so there's not really any measure by which you could say that the sanctions against Russia were effective. So then what could it possibly mean that the sanctions would be even less effective against China? To get an idea of the magnitude of the effects involved, consider the current debate in Europe on restricting Russian gas imports. Judging by European policymakers' hesitancy, one might think that cutting off energy supplies from Russia, which provides about 35% of Europe's natural gas, would doom the continent to an epic recession. But careful academic studies, including one by UCLA economist David Backe and co-authors, estimate that the negative effect of such a step on the German economy, which is particularly vulnerable, would likely be well under 1% of GDP or 2% in an extreme scenario. And of course, we're supposed to pretend that just wiping out 1% to 2% of GDP is no big deal. As with many similar thought experiments on the gains from globalization, much depends on one's assumptions about an economy's flexibility, about alternative sourcing, and about how sticky preferences are. The fact that Europe can use its gas reserves and LNG imports from the U.S. gives it time to adjust, and in the longer run, the cost of not relying on Russia for energy would be small indeed. Using a very different methodology, the European Central Bank comes to a broadly similar conclusion. True, both studies acknowledge great uncertainty, and policy matters. A European-wide mechanism to share gas resources would even the burden, and you can just pop one of those right up. But if one believes that the actual economic impact of cutting off Russian energy is so modest, then it is difficult to understand Europe's reluctance to do so now. Yes, that is actually difficult to understand. So you globalist say you have a series of studies of which you've shown just one. And you believe that there is a good argument to say that doing this thing really won't be a big deal. So why indeed, why indeed have European countries been reluctant to do it? Well, it could be that they're just really wimpy. 
Or it could be that your study's wrong. Like all of your studies are wrong. Every time the globalists do studies, the only reason that they do them is to get answers that help their agenda. They don't care what actually works on the large scale. They care about what gets them what they want. Everything they determine for the rest of society is already part of a plan. They are using these studies. This is what the science is for, for them. It's to explain to the masses why they must agree that this new part of the plan actually is going to be the best for everyone. And they've been doing this for decades. Consider how many people in our country are convinced that voter ID is racist. Why are they convinced of that? Well, they think they have really good reasons. First, they think that people like them are anti-racist. Yes, they see skin color in everything, but they're the good people, the helpful ones who know that racism is only bad when the other side does it. So to get the thing they want, which is no restriction on voter ID, they're going to tell you voter ID is racist, and then they're going to support that with all sorts of studies and think pieces about how voter ID might have some disparate impact. And that disparate impact will indicate a racist policy. And anyone who would promote a policy that could eventually be seen as having disparate impact and therefore being racist is a racist right now. But they still have to give all that pseudo-intellectual, pseudo-academic background for the very smart people to agree. Otherwise, that's just like your opinion, man. We have studies. That said, the effects of deglobalization, like the effects of globalization, tend not to be distributed equally. Europe's caution may well have much to do with pressure from lobby groups representing regions and industries that will be most affected by an embargo on Russian energy. China, of course, is not Russia. And it's always important to clarify that, I suppose. Its economy is 10 times larger. Over the past three decades, it has moved to the center of global trade and finance. As a critical supplier of intermediate inputs in manufacturing, as well as the final link in the Asian supply chain, China has literally become the workshop to the world. As an importer, it is now even more significant than the U.S. in sectors ranging from basic commodities to European luxury goods. China has over $3 trillion in foreign exchange reserves and is a major holder of U.S. government debt. Its savings and portfolio preferences have long been a major contributor to today's very low interest rate environment. So wouldn't world output fall massively if geopolitical tensions suddenly forced China into economic isolation, perhaps together with a group of other autocracies, including Russia and Iran? OK, well, first of all, China already has other alliances, as described before. It is not just other autocracies like Russia and Iran. They call everything that is not part of the global order an autocracy. So it's important to always remember that when they're using these little codes. But it's ridiculous to even suggest any of this as a premise. It's not true. Interestingly, canonical trade and finance models do not predict such catastrophic outcomes, at least not in the medium to long term. For example, one recent study found that decoupling global value chains, which would be hugely affected by a reduction in trade with China, would cost the U.S. only 2% of GDP. For China, the cost might be higher, but still only a few percentage points of GDP. And who can't afford to lose a few hundred billion dollars? I mean, everything in the economy is going so great since Joe Biden took office as fake president. While the literature on financial globalization also is extensive, the bottom line is the same. Openness to international lending and investment generally benefits a country, but the gains are quantitatively smaller than one might expect, especially where regulation is weak. Got to get that full regulation. That fixes everything all the time. More rules from the global communists always make stuff better. 
I mean, not yet, but theoretically, it'll make it better in the future. That's why you're supposed to give them all the power so that theoretically things might someday be better. And if they don't turn out to be, give them more power. One can conclude the impact of the U.S.-China economic split would be bigger by assuming that deglobalization would lead to a dramatic reduction in the variety of goods available to consumers, higher markups by local monopoly suppliers, and less, quote, creative destruction in the economy. Still, it is not easy to show that the effects of trade sanctions would be as crippling for either the U.S. or China as they have been for Russia's much smaller and less diversified economy. More subtly, but perhaps as important, global financial pressures can sometimes force even autocratic governments to adopt better policies and institutions, with central bank independence being a leading example. In 2014, after Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea, fear of a global bond market reaction to the resulting sanctions apparently discouraged President Vladimir Putin from firing the central bank head, Elvira Nabulina, where she raised interest rates to painful levels to fight inflation. In the event, she was widely credited with having prevented financial crisis and default. The Russian central bank status today is such that Putin is rumored to have refused Nabulina's resignation in the wake of the Ukraine invasion. My best guess, while acknowledging the difficulty of proving the point, is that an overshoot in deglobalization could easily be disastrous, particularly in undermining innovation and dynamism. But many academic studies estimate a smaller than expected quantitative impact from a U.S.-China economic rupture. That is the theory, at least. It would be much better not to test it. So the globalists are basically waving the white flag as far as China is concerned, they're like, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't push for all these sanctions on China like we did for Russia. I mean, it might not even be as effective. And yeah, we totally stopped Vladimir Putin with those sanctions. I mean, we didn't, but everybody's still on our side because we're showing them short videos of people we're saying are dead in Ukraine. The whole world is on our side. The comedic actor is doing appearances all over the place. Everybody loves him. American women are like, where is my Volodymyr Zelensky? Where is my comedic actor? And yeah, of course, our labs are being destroyed. And of course, all our assets are being decimated. And of course, our Nazi army is being wiped out. And of course, we're being exposed on the world stage. But thank goodness those sanctions were so effective, except, you know, that's not how it happened at all. And the sanctions didn't do anything except, of course, harm people. The ruble has recovered. Russian trade seems to be redirecting successfully. They still have leverage. Vladimir Putin and Russia still have leverage over the West, over the European Union based on that trade. And pretty clearly based on their ability to execute military operations as well. And so what does it mean that the global communists are now justifying a case against sanctioning China for their aggressive moves toward Taiwan? It sounds to me like another admission that none of these people have any leverage whatsoever. They have not even been able to successfully pull off false flag events, and potentially real-world scare events. They are failing in reality, in a practical sense, and they are failing in a narrative sense as well. And now, finally, let's switch subjects completely without a segue to some interesting news that we all woke up to this morning. Elon Musk has bought a massive chunk of Twitter. This is from Fox Business. Elon Musk purchases stake in Twitter after slamming its approach to free speech. Tesla CEO Elon Musk purchased a 9.2% stake in Twitter Incorporated, according to a Monday filing from the SEC. Twitter's shares jumped more than 25% in price following Monday's news. Musk now controls nearly 
1.5 million shares of the company, making him the largest shareholder. And individual stocks were priced at $49.81 on Monday morning. Musk's purchase comes roughly a week after the billionaire criticized Twitter for a lack of commitment to free speech. Given that Twitter serves as the de facto public town square, failing to adhere to free speech principles fundamentally undermines democracy, Musk tweeted March 26th. What should be done? Is a new platform needed? He later tweeted. Many of Musk's nearly 80 million Twitter followers encouraged him at the time to buy Twitter's platform entirely or create his own. Musk later tweeted that he was giving serious thought to the option of creating an entirely new platform. Musk has yet to make a public statement regarding the purchase of his nearly 10% stake in Twitter. So it seems that the newest, largest owner of Twitter stock is well aware of the problems Twitter has been causing to free speech and free discussion in the United States and in the world. And how many problems that creates. Now, he's a 9.2% shareholder. How much control does he have? Well, you would think he bought himself enough to get the leverage he wants to influence some change on Twitter. So hopefully we'll learn more about what he intends and what his goals are over the days to come. It's also interesting in relation to his Starlink satellite system and Elon going more into the social media tech space is big news regardless. It'll also be very interesting to see what interplay there is, if any, between Twitter and Truth Social now that Elon Musk has taken a big chunk of Twitter. So lots of very interesting stuff going on. Lots of good reasons to stay positive about the direction things are headed, and we'll see if this week continues the pattern of each week being bigger than the last. Now, just a heads up, I am probably not going to be able to deliver an episode on Friday and potentially not on Monday either, and it is my intent, at least, to build some content to put in place of a normal endgame episode on Friday and on Monday. So that's just a heads up so you don't think that I got banned again from another platform. Although there is absolutely always a possibility that I will get banned from another platform. So, hey, this is just the world we live in. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that 
by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!